Hello and welcome to the Tangential Space Podcast. I'm Matt Fowler. I'm Mike Girl. And I'm Dave Vandergriff. And this week we're going to be talking about the 2016 film Arrival from director Dennis Villanueva. I think I said his name right. Yeah. Kind of a tricky name there. I was just glad I didn't have um, to say it. <laughs> and then we could just go with my, my guess at how to pronounce it. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking about that film tonight. Um, kind of our first change of pace podcast after a couple that we just went through our favorites. Tonight we're just going to really dig into a specific topic, which again in this case is the film uh, Arrival. Yeah, and uh, we should probably point out that if you haven't seen it, we will probably spoil it. And, uh, I mean, you should go watch it because, um, spoiler alert, I think it's a good movie. But um, if you haven't seen it, I think for the, not that there's like a giant twist, but there's a slight twist and it's worth being surprised by that when you watch it originally. So... Keep that in mind if you haven't seen it, and for some reason you are going to keep listening now. But given that as our last warning, we can go ahead and get into it. Um, Yeah, Arrival came out 2016. Uh, It's based on a short story called The Story of Your Life, which is by Ted, I'm going to say Chang, is how you say that last name. Uh, It was adapted by Eric... Kirsier. I have no idea how to say that either. But the overall plot of the movie is basically uh, aliens arriving and then, I mean, hence the name Arrival, right? And then... They nailed that one. And then the people trying to find out what they want or how to communicate with them. And then, basically, the movie is about how language... And our models of language affect everything. Um, That's the general plot, I think, without getting too much into it, which we'll get into that as we go. Um, But we'll start with just some of uh, how how we feel about the the movie in more broad terms, uh, such as the cast. Uh, It stars Amy Adams in Hawkeye. So... Uh, you mean Jeremy Renner. <laughs> right. You mean Batman. Right. All, all of the above. Um, I don't believe he's played Batman at all. But yes, Jeremy Renner. Mike confuses the two. He did play Hawkeye. And uh, Forrest Whitaker is the only real other, I would say, main character. Um, yeah. I mean, there's sort of a few other minor characters, but I think it's basically the three of them. And really, not as much even Forrest Whitaker. I mean, it's basically Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. But I thought the casting was pretty pretty well done. Would you guys agree? Yes, I thought both uh, <clears throat> Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner did uh, excellent jobs. Uh, Forrest Whitaker and his bit there, you know, was well done. Um, even those supporting actors um, were all you know, able to hold their own and stand out with the material that they were given. Yeah, like there's a guy that played the main CIA director or whatever he was, the CIA liaison. Uh, Like I thought he did pretty well. And then 
there's a another character that was the other main army guy and in my mind he's his name is tom rendon because he's on uh halt and catch fire the amc show and that's his character there okay but i thought he was also well cast Oh, I liked Jeremy Renner in this because he wasn't quite in the Jeremy Renner role that I've seen him for. It felt like it was just sort of a a deviation from his normal stuff. Jeremy Renner's been kind of all over the map. I mean, you've got really his big kind of starting point was The Hurt Locker, which I think would fall very well in line with a movie of this nature. True, Um, yeah. You know, then you have more the popcorn stuff like, you know, his part in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, things like Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters, uh, the his roles in the, the Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. But, I mean, he's done a very good job of kind of switching things up. You've got movies like Kill the Messenger, um, Arrival Here, um, American Hustle. You know, he, he seems oh, yeah. like the well. the type of actor who... While he does get in those kind of big budget action movies, he also tries to pepper in some more serious films, some more opportunities to show his skills as an actor. Yeah. I guess then, to rephrase, it's more because, um, honestly, without looking at the IMDb and without you bringing it up, like I peg him more as like the the Hawkeye, the Mission Impossible, the Bourne, like, that's obviously his major market area, so I kind of, like, slipped through the cracks, and this is one of the few that I, of those ancillary films that I recall and more associate him with, if that makes sense. Well, and I, I think another thing, Dave, maybe that I think sticks out when you say that to me is that in this movie, he didn't really get angry. He tends to get angry in all the other movies when I picture him. And so I think maybe that's yeah, that's a big yeah. difference. Like, in my mind, he's just always getting mad and then taking action, right? Whereas this, he was more supportive and almost happy-go-lucky, I guess, to a point. I mean, it's a serious situation, obviously, but it's almost like a more carefree version of that. Right. But it's very driven by Amy Adams. Yes. You know, which is why she was up for quite a few different acting accolades um, for this performance. You know, and, and potentially she probably is... should have won. Yep. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen most of the other nominees, but uh, from this past year's Oscars, but yeah, I thought she was excellent in this role and it gave her a lot of good material to work with. Yeah, so the I mean the the casting the acting was all very good. Um It was directed by Dennis Villanueva, who um we will just call Dennis from now on. <laughs> <laughs> our, our pal Dennis. Um but I I've liked what he's done in Hollywood so far. Um Did either of you guys see Prisoners with Jake Gyllenhaal and uh Hugh Jackman. I have not, but it is one that I was very interested in, and like I don't know, it just must have slipped my mind because now that you bring it up, I'm like, why haven't I watched that? I really wanted to see it at some point, and I think it's been a few years now since it's been out. So 
I'll have to. Yeah, that was uh, 2013. I'll have to go ahead and um, look that up. But it, I, I remember it getting decent reviews, right? It did. It did. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, very dark movie, but an extremely well-made movie. Which um, seems right up my alley, then. Yep. Yeah, it's sitting at a 74 on uh, Metacritic.com. I don't have the Rotten Tomatoes nearby, but you'd assume it was probably certified fresh then in that case. Um, Sicario was also very good. And uh, you also have later this year, Blade Runner 2049 coming out. So as a director, he's been on a pretty good streak. And um, Arrival was just another opportunity for him to showcase those skills. Yeah. And while we're talking about the direct you know i I just think the whole the look and the feel i mean it starts with the director and it, you know like there's obviously a lot of other people that add to that but i think this movie was just very well made and looked beautiful and i mean they played with the lighting a lot like there was you know like anytime they're outside it was like overcast like crazy but that was just like helped set the tone of the movie you know yep and and i just thought the way it was shot like those sweeping like when they're in the field in montana like when they showed the ship and stuff like the way the shots would the big wide angle shots would sweep over the field and the way they played with the clouds i just thought it was looked really good well and it makes sense looking in dim that he's french canadian because i think with the pacing and everything it felt very much like a foreign film like it wasn't like you know Going back to Jeremy Renner, it's not the popcorn flick. It's not your blockbuster alien takeover thing. It was something that was, you know, kind of um, a slower pacing than uh, your typical American film. And it's also one that uh, kind of explores a different couple of different things um, in that regards, too. So that connecting those dots makes sense to me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's more of a cerebral science fiction versus a popcorn Guardians of the Galaxy, Star Wars, you know, adventure action science fiction. It was more similar to something like uh, Contact or um, Interstellar movies that, you know, while they have a level of excitement, a level of intrigue to them, they are more thinking science fiction so yeah, it stands out in that way too. One thing I did find very interesting while looking through like the uh the credits on the film, I was looking at the writer Eric Heiser and our buddy Eric. Is, like the one thing on his credits that stands out as good to me. You've got the Nightmare on Elm Street remake from 2010, Final Destination 5. The terrible remake of The Thing. Um, I have not seen Lights Out, but I've heard kind of decent things about it. I'm not a big horror guy. And then you've got Arrival. So as I was looking through, I'm kind of like, oh, that's interesting that somebody with those types of credits ended up writing for this movie and doing a very good job, you know, as the looks to be kind of lead writer on it. From from what I understood and kind of the background of them making the movie is 
I guess. I, th- I believe he was sort of obsessed with the story, the short story. And so it's like something he's been playing around with for a long time. Like he's wanted to make this movie. And then um, they got the director was kind of like he got basically assigned it by the studio. And so like they, it wasn't as much of a natural fit. Right. Like it wasn't like they came together to make it. It was like they're kind of thrown together, which I think means the accomplishment even that much better because, you know, it's harder to work, I think, in those situations than it is if it's more of a, you know, they they found each other and then went to, you know, shopped around to the studios. It was sort of like the studio pitted them together along with a few other people, but they all, and I think separately, they had both pictured Amy Adams as the main actress that they wanted to play it. And she was like supposedly taking a break from acting because she had just had a kid in real life. And then she took a break from that to come back because she loved the script so much. So probably also part of the reason she fits so well into it is because she really loved the story itself. And I think also just the whole, the sound effects are really good. I was listening to it right before we started this. I was just picking parts and rewatching it. And like, even with my better headphones on now than when I watched it before, like I heard there's so much more I could pick up and like, the way it was cut together and the sounds and like the sound design of the aliens and everything. I just think, I don't know. Sometimes sound is not brought up to the ranks of like the, the photography, you know, the cinema cinematography, but I think it is at just as important of an element to a movie. Oh, certainly. It's one of those things where unless you have that special home theater, you know, setup. You know, with the full seven point one sound, um, it's hard to appreciate it in the same way that you do when you go see something in the theater, where you get fully immersed in the sound. But again, here it was very well done. Even you know, so you when you're paying attention to it and you're watching it on, you know, a TV with a sound bar or even you know two speakers, or you might even been watching it on your computer. I don't know where. You know, when you notice those types of things, I think it does speak more for it, too, when you're noticing it outside of that theater environment. Well, and I think, too, with this one, like, it's one of those movies where, like, the sound is so good that you don't notice it. Um, Like, it just sort of, it amplifies, it enhances, it does it, but, like, it's not like going back to the, the popcorn things. It's not like you're blown back in your um, seat by all these explosions or lasers or anything like that. It's just one that enhances the environment, does its job, but doesn't call attention to itself. At least from what I recall of it. Yeah, there was only one big explosion in the whole thing. One small gunfight, which really the gunfight was almost wholly shown through sound because they didn't actually ever, like... They don't ever show any shots fired um, or or any of the gunfight itself, which I think is a good choice uh, for the story and the way it was shown because I think it, you know, most people would want to give in to the, hey, let's have a quick fight scene here, you know, like the big action sequences. But I think them choosing not to show it and you only kind of hear it as almost background noise, I think makes it that much better. Well, and that fits in more with the 
I think, overarching message of what Arrival is shooting for. Um, getting a little bit further into into some of like the story beats, um, but it's it's not that kind of like alien movie. It's not that kind of like it even one of my um, favorite parts was the one that sort of radio host or the TV slash radio host gets people sort of riled up into thinking that these aliens aren't um, aren't what we think. So we need to attack. We can go. That's sort of like instead of like say an Independence Day where that's the the heroes are inciting this. We need to attack to survive. It's almost kind of uh, vilified that we should attack these aliens. So violence is seen as the deterrent instead of the um, A1 sort of uh, default uh, response or defense mechanism. Well, and I think uh, it's sort of getting into a few of the plot points that I had wanted to discuss too, but like the way aliens are handled in this movie is so different than any other movie with aliens kind of like you're saying like every other movie it's like they're here to fight right away it's just action and i mean there's not a lot of movies i don't know if i could think of any where it's like it's almost more of a or at least not any when it's more than one alien sometimes one alien like you think et but even that turned into like pretty much the government just wanted to kill him right but um or at least well, cut, you have cut that here open. too well right i mean there's certain factions but i mean it didn't immediately jump to that right like i mean like you think like independence day like they just showed up and started blowing stuff up or you know war of the worlds where they came down and they're just wreaking havoc or you know whatever a case may be alien you know um i think that the only one that's popping into my mind and it's been a while since i've seen it would be the day the earth stood still yeah well, the- where you had a more peaceful alien encounter well wasn't that just one guy like the one alien that came out one guy and then his crazy robot alien thingy right but you've got both the remake and the original with keanu um, keanu was in the remake right well i mean the original probably came out like a, the 70s or he's something not alive for the original yeah. probably <laughs> no i think it's older than that even. i think it's 50s yeah yeah but but no, in, in general, aliens in movies are viewed as an adversary. They're viewed as a I guess they tried to invading force. I mean, I guess they tried to talk to him in Mars Attacks, right? Um, yep. Yeah, but in the same way they tried to talk to him in Independence Day, you know, with the flashing light thing. I feel like in Mars Attacks, though, the name kind of gave that one away. Title of the movie. Well, and one thing I like, too, <clears throat> is that they kind of come at them almost in a way as if they were human without them looking like they were human. Cause I think a lot of, and this is primarily like TV sci-fi, but it's like, Oh, the alien is, you know, very much human features or, you know, an actor who's in brightly colored makeup or something else there. So we interact with them because they look like us. So we sort of give them perhaps the benefit of the doubt, but these guys, they were so, or they were designed, um, you haven't watched and you're still listening. I will paint you a word picture. <laughs> um, but kind of like these, um, 
almost submerged octopus or squid type um creatures so there's something that's just very they're also very large so they're a menacing force and they don't look anything like humans but um again we approach them at more of like a scientific um sort of let us try and understand and figure it out versus coming out guns a blazing right yeah it i just think it's sort of refreshing the way they went about it i mean it's it's just nice to see something different once in a while yeah i mean there's nothing wrong with a good alien invasion action movie but at the same time you know it is nice to have some science fiction that makes you stop and think and um in the case when i watched this movie it was with my older brother and my wife and afterwards, like, you sit there for a moment or two in silence and then you talk about, you know, what you, how you interpreted the film, what you thought was going on um, versus just like, oh, high-fiving, oh, that part was awesome. I love the part with all the explosions and death. You know, you interact with it in a very different way. Well, I think you'd like to use this almost not exactly as a roadmap, but you'd like to think that should this ever happen, that this is the route that we would take, that we would choose this versus, you know, kind of blowing it or have it deteriorate or have it be a worst-case scenario. You'd like to think that should aliens arrive in such a manner that we engage them appropriately and with, with respect, so you'd, like, want that to happen. So it's almost like an altered reality or sort of like a you know we could certainly see this coming versus this world is not anything like the world that we know but at the same time the conflict in the movie comes from the fact that not everyone has that experience you know there is that element of fear like you brought up earlier that causes you know each nation dealing with the situation to allow it to escalate in a different manner. So um, the Chinese and the Russians are, you know, much more fearful of what the aliens are there for. Um, where, and even on the American side, you have people with those feelings, whereas Amy Adams was, and Jeremy Renner, provide a voice of reason to help calm and prevent the escalation or overreaction to the presence of this giant alien spaceship. Right. And that's the that's the other side of the coin of that made it feel not quite I want to say documentary, I don't want to take it to that extreme, but felt true cuz it was you felt the right choice to engage with these aliens and in this situation, but also like you said it was a a delicate balance and you saw a point where like they stopped trusting each other and cutting off communication and not sharing data. And you could very much see that happening as well. Like that, that fine line, it it danced that really good um, truth in their storytelling while also telling, you know, a fictionalized story. And, and I thought like, that was one of the things that I liked about the movie was it, like as far as like the military base, like it felt very much like what it would really be like. And I liked that like with Forrest Whitaker's character, like he 
he wasn't like he didn't play it over the top he didn't play it like as like he's this crazy general like he played it very straight to the point like what i think a real general would and and, and all the while being mindful that there's a, a political game above him basically that like you know anytime he wanted to question what or do he she wanted to do he would be fine with it but he said you have to you have to explain it to me in a way that i can explain it to them because i'm answering to someone else and and like you said with the way the communication went between the different countries like it was all good until someone decided they weren't and then suddenly everybody was shutting it down and and you can see how politics can make a mess of you know things that are very important and science in general which i guess is a interesting theme to point out but uh you know like those types of things really happen but i thought the military base felt very much like that's how it would really be a pop-up base like that they could make and like there's this first shot when um Luis and Ian are flying in in the helicopter those are the names of the characters when they're flying in in the helicopter for the first time when they first see it you can see like this swarm of people outside and then they get to this point where they're getting denser and denser and then they hit a fence where they're you know keeping people away a certain perimeter and like I could imagine from my point of view like the military showing up immediately building a perimeter and like just the you know like the wheels turn fast i think in those type of situations and it it felt real to me in that way yeah overall production design and visuals same thing as my thought with the audio were they fell right in line with a a believable even down to the the aliens they didn't feel too cgi or anything like it was all very grounded which i think helps build an authenticity to the story but at the same time they're also you never get a really good clear look at them you know they're in this you know they're separated by a kind of glass wall a see-through wall um and the alien side is so foggy and murky that you're getting the general shape but until they come really close you know it still leads a lot to the imagination um, for these. I believe they call them heptapods in the film, or they're given the names Abbott and Costello for the two of them. Um, but, you know, even even at the closest point, like, or the clearest view, it still leaves, you know, something to your imagination to, to fill in the blanks, to to add in the texture and the the grittiness. Well, and also it's a good storytelling device because obviously being human, like it helps keep them as part of the unknown too. Like we don't see a good, uh, like clear view at them. So we don't feel very, you know, connected or it's not like we feel like we know more than the characters that we're traveling along with. Mm -hmm. We're sort of in the dark alongside them and also still kind of, cautious or trying to figure it out it's like we get to play along from that side instead of being an omnipotent sort of knowing both things or seeing a conversation between the aliens and sort of knowing what's coming forth we're encountering this discovery alongside of the main characters as they go along with it and i just wanted to go i we're sort of getting into the aliens but I, i think just the overall story and the overall plot as a whole i think is really well done um so the story is basically you know the aliens arrive 
they fly in a few experts, um, Ian being the theoretical physicist, played by Jeremy Renner, and Luis, played by Amy Adams, being the language expert. And, you know, over the course of time, they, they slowly... they The military just wants to find out what the aliens are here for. But, you know, like, Luis is very, like, well, we have to be more methodical about it. You can't just jump in and ask them that. You don't even know if they understand questions. And so... You know, and then as they progress, they start kind of taking a few more risks on their own, kind of doing what they want, which, as we talked about, led to, you know, supposedly the aliens, they think they talked about a weapon, which leads uh, a few of the more, how do you say, um, people that could be influenced by the outsiders of the military, like thinking that it's dangerous and they took up their own action and they decided to try and destroy the aliens and it's sort of like the last was the second to last contact with them because then an explosion goes off and the aliens sort of save Luis and Ian and I think that that's around the point where they you know after the the explosion Luis sort of figures it out um or she starts to figure it out you know and and they realize that there's sort of the turn in the movie, which is the fact that the aliens and their heptapods and their language is not in the same terms linear as we think of language or time, but it's sort of all-encompassing in one, like they have many words in one symbol, and that's sort of how they look at time, which we'll get into that in a little bit, I'm sure, but the main turn in the movie is you realize that the movie itself is not linear either. And I think that is done very well in this movie. Like when you realize, you know, two thirds of the way through, as you get to the third act that, uh, Luis at the very beginning, they showed her having a kid and then the kid growing up a little bit and being a teenager and dying of in the movie, she has some disease. It's, I read the short story and in that it's weird because she dies, she's like 25 and she dies from like a climbing accident. Like she was like a mountain climber. But I think when at the beginning it, it, it sets the tone, but in reality, that's not the beginning. And it's funny because the opening line, she says, I thought this was the beginning, but it's really the end, like sort of giving away the whole thing right in the beginning. And you just don't realize it. And I think the way they handle that turn is is very well done in this movie. Although not without its pain points, but I think they did it very well. Yeah. Well, it's, it is one where it's um, because of how her character behaves at the beginning of the movie, too. It gives you this impression that she is a woman grieving. So you, you assume that what you've seen was you know a flashback to her past versus a flash forward to her future right they show her you know show the scenes with her and the kid growing up and then dying and then they show her going to class to teach and she seems very uh distracted or displaced like like she is a grieving melancholy yeah like she's just walking through going about her business but yeah like you said like it turns out that's just how she was and it, she hasn't even had her child yet but you don't realize that till later and like 
Sometimes she makes references to a husband, but really she's talking about the future. And it turns out to be Jeremy Renner because who else was it going to be? But, and then slowly things like, you know, like this show, they have these little hints of, of where she's talking about something in one time and then sort of it's filling in from another time, but slowly, I mean, it's building up to the point of the climax where they show you that she can kind of see time all at once as opposed to a, a more linear conventional thought on it. Well, another thing too, um, is I think that that's, it's handled in a way where it doesn't feel like you're jumping around. Like it's another thing where you're going through that discovery. Um, there are other ones like, um, cloud Atlas immediately comes to mind where things certainly felt a, a lot more, um, static when you're going back and forth between some of the, the time jumps and that may or may not have been intentional for the Wiskowskis in that one. But, uh, but I think it was certainly handled if not better. Um, but I more approved of the way that sort of concept was explained again, because you got to go through a bit of a discovery with it instead of kind of feeling displaced by it. Yeah, I mean, Cloud Atlas also, I think it was doing it, it was disjointed intentionally so that you had this sense of seeing parallels between the different storylines. Whereas here, because it is one more very focused, contained storyline, it doesn't have that same disjointed feeling. Not to really, you know, give Cloud Atlas an excuse because it wasn't a great film, but still... Yeah, I think it was more of a choice in Cloud Atlas. That was just the first yeah. and sort of a to state something on the opposite extreme. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, as the movie progresses and she she sort of you realize she is I mean, the major, you know, resolution it it's kind of hinges on her knowing what happened in the future or whatever. We'll kind of graze over that for now and come back to it. But in the end, you at the end of the movie, you know, after the aliens leave and she has this this ability to see time as a whole thing, um, you realize that Jeremy Renner is her, the father to her child and that obviously they weren't together. And you realize the reason they end up breaking up or splitting apart is because she knew the whole time that the child would die and apparently told him at some random point in between time, uh, but went ahead anyway. Um, in the movie, it makes it seem like she has this choice and she chooses to go through with it. And she chooses to continue to, you know, like she chooses to be with him and go with him. And at, at, I think toward the end of the movie, uh, he asks her if she wants to have a child and she says yes all the while knowing that you know how things will end for them and i think that's one of the bigger questions in the whole movie not of the movie itself but you know that it kind of poses is do you do you choose things like would you would you choose to live the life if you knew that's how it ended 
or would you change things? I think that's one of the, I think she actually might ask him that at some point, if I remember right, but. I believe she does, right, toward, yeah, in the, towards the end of the film. Yeah, she says, because he says, he says something along the lines of, I would have spoke up more often, or I would have spoke what I really felt, something along those lines, almost in that way, implying that he wishes sooner that he would have said something about the way he feels about her, actually, but she is totally meaning, would you change things, because it's, she's almost insinuating that she, she's asking him if, if he knew what she knew, would he change it? And so I think I think that's one of the, the kind of philosophical questions that are the sort of thing that I like out of movies is when it make you think, you know, what would you do in that situation? You know, would you choose to have the child knowing that it's it's gonna end badly, or would you change things and avoid the hurt? Well, one of the quotes I, I found from the movie that kind of pertains to that is um, Amy Adams' character, Dr. Louise Banks, speaking, and she says, So, Hannah, this is where your story begins, the day they departed. Despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it. I welcome every moment of it. That knowing that there is pain and sorrow ahead, but also knowing there's the joy in there, too. Like, she can't experience the joys of motherhood, the joys of family, if she hides from the painful outcome that's coming further down the road. Yeah. Well, I think, too, that it it sort of shatters the notion of, like, oh, life would be, life would be easier if I just know, like, what's coming, or I know, you know, what my roadmap is, so to speak. But I think it it shows that it's just as difficult because if you do have, you know, free will in that moment, like, to change something like that, then that's still a a harrowing choice of do I go along with it and go through as this this path ends or do I change it and, you know, ruin something like this. It's not as clear-cut as, like, if you think, like, Oh, I know the future. Like, great. I'm going to buy a couple of lottery tickets. I'm going to, you know, make some money and life's going to be easy. But it's certainly not, um, you know, an easy choice as portrayed through the, the back half of the film when you kind of start to put the dots together. Well, and I think it stuck out to me as that was the biggest difference between, well, one of the two main big differences one of a few main differences between the book and the movie. <laughs> well, the weirdest thing to me, the weirdest part is that the uh, Ian has a different name because he's named Gary in the book, in this short story, but that's just me being weirded out by that. But, uh, you know, the big difference is it, in the in the short story, it makes it very clear that it doesn't matter that she knows. She doesn't actually have a choice. Like, they specifically go and they, they sort of use an example similar to the one you just gave, Dave, where... Like they were talking about horse racing. Like, what? What? If you knew the future, why wouldn't you just go bet on it? But they, it, they made it very clear that it's not really a choice in the in the story. It's uh, you just know what's happening and you're living through it all at once. You're just experiencing everything at once, all at the same time, and it's not something you can change. Like they said, they even used like 
that that was in the in the story the aliens actually did have a a verbal language as well where in the movie they didn't but they said that the reason they hated using their verbal language is because it takes too much time because you have to use the structure in the sequence then and they would only do it with the humans because they knew they had to do it to get through and it was they they already knew the whole point of the conversation they were just going through the motions so it, they made it very clear that there was no choice once you know everything you can't change it basically which gets into this whole free will versus determinism but that's a whole rabbit hole so <laughs> maybe not one we want to dig into this far into a podcast it might take a while yeah another one that sort of challenges that um that i really like is adjustment bureau it looks at some of the same same questions as we're sort of touching on there with the sort of all-knowing and sort of the another uh probably a little bit more clearly laid out sort of uh predestination versus free will um well that one's still falling a little bit more on the side of a quote-unquote popcorn flick yeah I, I like that movie um it's sort of and it's yeah it's sort of like but there's a little bit more flexibility versus where this one it's kind of more you're locked into just knowing. Well, like even like in the time traveler, it's sort of the same thing, right? I mean, he kept going back because he wanted to save his wife, and no matter what, she just died in a different way. I mean, <clears throat> it's sort of the same concept, but like I said, we don't really need to go down all that. <laughs> and and I think like you know one of the big things that people take away from this movie is like it's kind of. Well, and this will kind of lead into the criticism section, but time travel in general in this movie. To me, like, I know when Fallon and I kind of talked about it briefly before we sort of talked about it as time travel, but to me it's not really time travel because it's 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 wrapping your head around a whole um, linear time, circular time, time is a flat circle situation, right? Like, uh, yeah, like it, it's it's not really she's not traveling. It's just that she's almost... Uh, omnipresent throughout her entire life as opposed to living it linearly and i think it's interesting that the two main concepts they attack uh in this movie are language and time when those are both solely uh constructs of human mind right like uh i mean the earth spins yes but we're the ones that associated that with a, a construct of time and everything in language is made up obviously in our own minds at some point or through history right and so i just thought that, that was another interesting point of view um and i have a lot of thoughts on time travel and so i think it's easier to avoid that all by just calling it uh linear time uh instead of well it's a unique challenge to even just thinking of it within the like the movie realm like you're trying to show and immerse the viewer in an omnipresent story while being trapped within the confines of, you know, a linear start to finish movie. When the general expectation is that you're entering a beginning, middle, end, or sometimes like, you know, movies will throw you in the middle and then, oh, let's rewind a bit. Like you get middle, beginning, end, but there's still a structure either way. Like they're trying to introduce you to the idea without knowing 
that you're being introduced to the idea. Or like a memento where you have, you know, a two different, you know, time periods traveling, you know, so you're starting at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie at the same time and kind of meeting halfway. Yeah. And then continuing on, you know, so yeah, I mean, you know, other filmmakers have played around with this concept before as well, but here, you know, it it is so different, so unique. Like Mike said, it's more circular and she's not actually traveling, but she's able to experience it all at once and experience or remember, you know, things from the future, things from the past. Um, but it, it did cause one problem for me while watching it. Um, and that came in um, the final act of the movie is, you know, they're trying to kind of get all the countries back on board with China threatening to attack the aliens. And she remembers meeting General Shang, who's the kind of the head of the, the Chinese program. And he, you know, she sees the future where she meets him at this kind of big event that occurs after the events of the film um, and the aliens leaving where, you know, he expresses his gratitude for her, her reaching out to him and calling, which is when he shows her his phone with the number. So then the, in the past, she's able to remember that, recall that number, get her hands on a satellite phone to call him. But to, to me, the the part I struggle with is she would have to, at some point, she has to get that number without actually getting the number to be able to call him. If that makes sense. So, so your issue is, and I fully understand it, and I do think it is. A, I think it is the weak. Well, one of the two. There's one other part that I have a problem with, but I would say it's probably the weakest part of the movie, which. Is still a great movie, but this is the, the slight problem with it is that it sort of uses its, I think it's called the bootstrap paradox. So basically you're creating your own loop that it's, it's, you created it, but you're kind of stuck in it. Like the only way for her to know the number was that she, he told her, but how, why would he have told her unless she already called it? Like, like there's no way to explain one without the other happening. So why would they both happen? Yes. Um, and it's the same, like, because then he tells her, well, you, the, the way you changed my mind was you told me the, my wife's words to me that were on her deathbed. And then he tells her what they were. And as he's saying them to her, I mean, it's a cool visual experience as you're watching it and not thinking about the paradox part of it is, you know, he's telling her in one time frame and she's repeating it to him back in the other. But the problem with that is, well, how did one get the information without the other? One of the plausible semi, I I think people trying to talk their way through it is that maybe by that point he had sort of gotten the same abilities as her because he was also working with the heptapods and maybe he got the gift as well. And sort of that's why he knew he had to do that to help her, but it's still kind of this weird situation. And I understand your problem with it. And I do think it, it's a little bit like we're starting to get into a little bit of muddy waters there, but yeah. but 
the way it's shot well kind of helps you forget it and then it, it sort of moves on quickly after that so they don't like dwell in it i think mostly probably for that reason um but yeah well i think it, it's hard to get around i kind of understood it i kind of understood it as like because she was piecing together the language like you know you're able to do like part of it like as she was kind of deciphering and getting it like it wasn't until like the um watershed moment where like that threshold broke and she was like 100 percent immersed in it but like as you're 75 percent of the way there like at what point if you know and like remember the past does that sort of permeate back to you so i view it as sort of like if you think of it kind of like a computer booting up like she's kind of in the processes for it which activates certain functions perhaps or like glimpses like she may not have been fully in this sort of um omniscient um state of mind yet but she still could engage as it's sort of as you're kind of figuring out kind of how to ride the proverbial bike right she comes down out of that the her her last meeting with them was when she went up by herself and it's after that it's sort of after that when they told her we gave you the gift. Uh, the gift is the language. You can use it like we can, basically, because we're going to need your help in the future. And it's after that that this takes place. So it is, she is piecing it together faster. Because, I mean, really throughout the whole movie, you, especially in a second viewing, you, you see that it's slowly being pieced together. Like, she's kind of almost dreaming the other parts. And then toward this part, it, it's almost like she's at full into it, like you said. Like, it's it's kind of coming pl- complete but I still think that it's still a bit of a, a loose thread there. Like it, it's sort of like the best way they could get it to slide through, but like, I can't think of a better way they could have done it at that point. And I don't know about you Fowler, if there's a better way you would have fixed that. But I think, like I said, they moved on from it quickly enough that it still kind of sticks out as a little bit of a spot, but not so much that it destroys the movie. Yeah. I mean, if, the the phone number was the biggest part for me. Like, if they could have found some plausible way for her to have had that number, then the conversation part I could be a little more okay with. But it was... It's just... It's, it's enough to give you a little bit of pause and, you know... But it's it's one of those nice things that gets you talking after the movie. It gets you thinking about it and engaging in the movie beyond you know, just the two hours that you've devoted to watching it. So even though I struggle with it, it's it's still, you know, in some ways helps. It helps, you know, get you to dialogue and talk and, you know, engage in the movie further. Yeah, and I think, like, well, with the short story, like, that whole part uh, never even happens. It's basically all within the United States. And so I think that was just added to make the movie more massive. And it's also in the in the short story, they, she, whenever it's uh, it's less of a visual medium, so there's not a way to really break it in that oh yeah that's the future. So in the in the story, they're basically t- she's talking about talking to the aliens in the present, and then in the she always it's like it skips around to these future parts but she's talking about it in future tense like talking to her daughter 
in the future tense. She's like, and when you're three, you're going to do this, blah, 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 and like tells a story. And it's just, it's sort of weird that way. But yeah, I I think they added that for the movie just to kind of make it more grand and, and to make the scale so much larger. Just a real quick bounce on that. Um, there's just an overall growing trend on, if you think about, um, well, I think it was kind of written into The Martian, but The Martian and this of having China sort of playing a part in it. Um, even the one of the more recent movies that I um, just came across, uh, The Edge of Seventeen, had a Chinese production film in it. One of the main characters was there, but as like Hollywood sort of making a conscious partnership, partnership and shift to appealing to China because um, foreign grosses are that much more um, profitable necessarily than domestic gross. I mean, I don't have full numbers. I know it did a hundred hundred million, I think, domestically, but when you sort of make China the hero or they're involved in the solution, then that brings in not just a global scale in your movie, but in terms of like distribution, in terms of viewership, that's going to really bump it in what's really becoming the number one market for consuming movies in the theater right now. Well, I mean, they've done that with uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, um, yep. was very conscious about it. Uh, Transformers Age of Extinction was very conscious in adding that element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's even additional footage that ends up in the Chinese release or, you know, mild tweaks made for the Chinese release versus the American release. Um, but yeah, it, it they are attempting to appeal more for that global box office because that has become huge. That has, you know, helped some movies that, you know, did not do great here in the States, but then you add in that foreign box office and suddenly something like, you know, Pacific Rim is now getting a sequel, not because of the United States and, you know, our film taste, but because, you know, foreign audiences um, really latched on to it, which is cool to see and adds a nice element. So you can see why they would push it to be a more global encounter with aliens versus just an American one. Although surprisingly, it was a worldwide gross of 198 million. It was almost a dead even 50-50 split of domestic and foreign gross for this one. Fun fact. Yeah. Or not so fun fact. No, I mean, it's it's definitely the trend we see now in the movies, so um, my one other major criticism of the movie would have been the slight uh, mutiny, I guess you would call it, that happened. It just seemed like they, they, it was very obvious going into it. Like, whenever they showed the guy, uh, Tom, I called him earlier, like, it just, they, the way it was filmed, that part was very obvious that he was, like, unhappy with how things were going and he wanted to do something about it. But that's minor. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, I touched on this earlier, but that that is certainly 
a plausible event that you could see happening in such a situation, especially in um, this was uh, pre a lot of what's been going on politically here, France, etc., going on. But like, still, you could see someone sort of getting riled up in that fashion and doing it. It wasn't like it was an out of the blue. We need someone to kind of shake things up story-wise. That's a you know you can logically connect the dots and put A to B that that situation could happen. So, you know, not saying that's entirely excusable or if it was, or that it wasn't severely sort of foreshadowed where you knew it was coming. But for me, sort of excusing it away is it that was a very real or potential um, outcome for where we were at that point in the story. Yeah. And Mike, just so you're aware, Tom's actual name in the film was Agent Marks, played by Mark O'Brien. Yeah, Tom Rendon. That's what I said. (laughs) (laughs) I tried. I tried. Um, Overall, I think we could probably start uh, giving our general impressions, but I think... Overall, obviously, I think I really liked the movie. I am much more akin to the psychological, philosophical ideas of that sort of thing. So, you know, and especially anything with time travel, although much of time travel eats at me, as Matt, especially you know, um, as we've had many discussions on the subject. But I thought they handled everything pretty well. And overall, I think it's a it was a refreshing movie, uh, an original, not like a remake of an old movie or a sequel to a movie, which doesn't happen as much anymore. So overall, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I would agree. It was it was a very well done movie. Um, thoroughly enjoyed. I have not seen enough of the other best picture candidates from the this past year's Oscars um, to know if you know it deserve to have won over them um but it it definitely was worthy of the nomination that it received and again the same for uh amy adams and her acting in the film um was very well done so you you could see why um, people were celebrating her work here Um, if you have not seen it yet i do highly recommend checking it out but just to no going in that it is not a fast-paced movie. It's something you're going to think about, take some time with. And at this point, you know everything that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, that's true, too. Yet, you're pretty well informed going in. Um, I would tend to agree. Um, my only sort of, I guess, drawback with it is my in my initial viewing, like I wasn't anticipating it being so slow. In fact, in the theater I was at... Um, couple walked out of it um probably half hour 45 minutes in which i completely disagree with but i think sometimes like maybe knowing ahead of it that it was gonna be as much of a thinker may have changed my view or like not that i would pay more attention but like get me in the right mindset just like when i'm um eventually get to manchester by the sea another one of the nominees like i know it's a dude pressing movie and you'll never be in the right mindset for it but at least like you're aware you can kind of sort of hedge your bets 
um, going into it, sort of prep for it. But um, I I certainly liked it. The fact that it's based off of a short story is probably one of the closest things that you're going to see to a truly original um, story in Hollywood, especially um, we've all kind of touched base on this before, how a lot of properties are remakes or it's an easier um, easier risk um, if you're going on an established property or if you're Disney just remaking all of your cartoons as live action. Like, it's it's comfortable. You know what you're getting there. Whereas this was sort of... Um, a complete creative sort of risk and uh not complete but like you were talking about it wasn't one where they're throwing big name director guy and big name screenwriter guy and best-selling book that had sold you know hundreds of millions of copies like um they kind of dug around for a lot of the unknowns and uh and hit a home run with it so um i would Definitely agree for a watch and uh, probably um, as I enjoyed it, a, a rewatch because I think you're going to pick up on a lot more uh, with it. Plus, the whole just linguistics thing was a fascinating sort of way to focus on what you think would be almost an exhausted first contact with aliens um, basic plot point. Yeah, I think that kind of wraps up our talk on Arrival here. Um, so hopefully you've enjoyed listening. Um, hopefully it'll get you thinking you got the movie again. Or um, again, if you haven't seen it, now you know all about it, but maybe you still want to see it. Um, so it's worth checking out. Um, we'll be back with a new podcast. Um, however, you can check out our previous podcast if you haven't listened to them yet. Um we're tangential space. Um, we also have a blog site set up on Medium, which is tangentialspace.com, where we have some different uh, articles on books and TV shows and movies and just the things we're um, into and checking out um, and just some other random thoughts. So please give it a look and uh, check us out. But again, thank you for listening. I'm Matt Fowler. I'm Mike Girl. And I'm Dave Vandegrift. Have a good one.